Good morning. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for three hundred denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Good morning. Merry Christmas. I wanted to thank publicly John and Mark and Matt for preaching and Mike for taking on double pastor duty uh, while I was with TLI and out of the office. I'm grateful for these men, and you should be too. God has blessed us with these with these good shepherds. It was good to be able to train other pastors, and it's good to be back. Uh, love Grace Church, love my home, uh, and it's good to be back in the Gospel of John as well. It seems to me especially fitting that we are fast approaching John's account of Jesus' death and resurrection in, in the Gospel at the time of year in which we celebrate Jesus' birth. Thankful for the providence of God. It's often too easy. Check check your heart for this. Uh, check mine. It's often too easy to get caught up in celebrating the cuteness of, you know, the eight-pound, six-ounce little baby Jesus and the mystique of the, the moonlit uh, nativity scene. It's, it's easy to get caught up in that. Likewise, even, this is good uh, in its own way, but it's easy to get stuck on the more theologically rich reality of the incarnation. This time of year, we should do that. We, we should appreciate the incarnation. It is a remarkable thing. But as a special and significant as those things are, they are incomplete without Jesus' suffering and death and resurrection. Again, it is good to have them paired together in this season. I didn't plan this. I'd love to tell you that two years ago or whatever it was when we began John's Gospel, I set it up so that we would literally be today a week before Christmas and a week before Jesus would be crucified in John's Gospel. I'd love to tell you I planned that, but I didn't. God did. So it's good for us to have them paired together this season, experiencing both the love and peace of the virgin birth and the shock and hope of the cross and the empty tomb. And so with that, welcome back to John 12, again, in God's good providence, one week before the crucifixion in John's gospel, even as we're one week before Christmas in our yearly calendar. In chapter 12, as I pointed out in my last sermon, which happened to be a month ago now, Jesus was moving towards, in John 12, Jesus was moving toward Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. 
You remember, you may remember that Jesus was coming down from the north with a large group of people, a large group of Jews who also were coming towards Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. Well, many continued on. So coming down, Jerusalem was just a, a, a bit south still. While coming down, you may remember that many continued on into Jerusalem on Friday, but Jesus and his disciples turned aside just a few miles early. They went to Bethany, the hometown of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And it was there, again, you may remember just a few weeks before this chapter, before chapter 12, just a few weeks earlier, that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, foreshadowing his own imminent resurrection. Well, back in Bethany. Jesus is now back in Bethany, that same town, again, as we saw last time, a month ago. Mary poured out the expensive perfume on Jesus, his feet at dinner, at a dinner in his honor. So that brings us to our primary text for this morning, which is John chapter 12, verses 9 through 11. He's, He's still in Bethany. Well, in that passage, we find a second parallel, or foreshadowing between Jesus and Lazarus. That is, the Jewish leaders making plans to put Lazarus to death as well. That is, as well as Jesus. And in that, we find even more help to wrap our minds around the significance of who Jesus is. He was and is. What he's about to do one week from now, and chronologically in John's Gospel, and again, the crowd's response to it. And so the, the, the presumption I'm making this morning for all of you, and I'm about to pray that that would be true already, and if not, that God would make it true in this moment, but the presumption is you want to wrap your minds around the significance of who Jesus is. Kids, wake up. This is you too. If somebody brought you here this morning and you're a guest and you aren't quite sure what you're doing here, one of our biggest prayers for you is that you would want to wrap your mind, your heart, and eventually your your whole life around the significance of who Jesus is. All of history hangs on this and hinges on this, but not just who he is, but what he's about to do in John's gospel. And I think John wants us to understand as significant, or at least along with all of that, is how people respond to that. As you're confronted with who Jesus is and what he's about to do, namely die on a cross and raise from the dead, what is your response to it? That is as significant for John in his gospel as what Jesus would do and say and teach. So the big ideas of this passage are familiar. In other words, if you hear anything, hear this. Sin has shocking, blinding, killing effects. You got to see that. You will see that, I think. We have seen that. We'll see it again. And second, in spite of that, the grace of God is unstoppable. The main takeaway for us today, then, is to put our faith in Jesus in such a way that drives out fear. So let's pray that God would be pleased to use this passage to free us from fear and firm us in our faith. God, I I do pray this morning that you would fill this room with people who long to know more, to understand more, to feel more, to have in our bones more understanding of who Jesus is, why he came, 
what he accomplished, what that means for us today, and how our response to these things affects our lives and even our eternal lives. Fill this room with people who long, especially at this time of year where we celebrate or at least claim to be celebrating Christmas, the coming of this God-man. I pray that you would fill this room with people who long to know Christ more. That's why you came, Jesus. Praise you for that. Father, that's why you sent your spirit to work in us, to create a greater longing in us, to live and think and feel and be like Jesus, to follow Jesus wherever he leads and whatever it costs, not just as a cold, calculated act of obedience, but because we believe with all of our hearts that he and he alone leads on the path of everlasting joy. God, you've made us to glorify and enjoy you forever, and following Jesus is to the means to that end. Open us through the open our eyes through the response of these religious leaders to the absolute folly of all other ways. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One of one of the ways that this passage helps us to become firm in faith and free of fear is in the fact that it points to something greater than the events in it. God does this a lot. I hope you've seen that already in John. I I hope you've seen that many times as you read your Bibles on your own. But again, I hope our time in John's Gospel has helped you to see that God helps his people trust in him. We want to trust in him with all that we have. And God helps us to do that by creating things, literal physical things. He creates things and orchestrates events to provide the categories that we need to best understand him and his purposes and his ways. Let me give you a few examples. We've seen this already in John, at least some of these, and others in the rest of the Bible. But he created, the Bible tells us that God created light and dark to help us understand righteousness and sin. Get your head around that for a minute. Why, why are, why is there a sun and stars and night and day? God made those things in order to help us understand righteousness and sin. He created male and female and the institution of marriage to help us understand the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. He created stomachs. Why do you have a stomach? Kids, why do you have a stomach? Well, you know, maybe you are learning in school that it helps store and process food and things like that. Well, that's that's true. But on a deeper level, the Bible tells us that he gave us stomachs, created stomachs to help us understand what it means to hunger for righteousness. He orchestrated Jonah's time, the New Testament tells us, in the belly of the fish, in part to help us understand Jesus' time in the grave. He orchestrated Noah's time on the boat to help us understand his second coming. He created the offices of prophet, priest, and king to help us understand Jesus' nature and work. He established the sacrificial system to help us understand the atonement that Jesus would provide. He gave us the Tower of Babel in order to help us understand Pentecost. And, Grace, get this, from this passage, he gave us Lazarus in part to help us understand Jesus' nature and mission as well as the response of the Jews to him, to Jesus, and it, his mission. Lazarus, in several ways, is a kind of foreshadowing of Jesus, or the events of his life foreshadow certain events in Jesus' life. 
God gave that to us, gave Lazarus to us in the story in John's Gospel to help us become firm in faith and free from fear as they point us to the greater fulfillment in Jesus. So don't miss these, Grace. Don't don't miss these foreshadowings, these, these things that God has built into creation and history to teach us about Jesus and ourselves and in Him, especially those that the Bible explicitly tells us about. You would do well. If you want, if you want a, a, a really practical, functional takeaway from this sermon for this week, spend some time reading the Christmas story. But don't just, you probably all done that many times, maybe already this Advent season. But as you read the Christmas story, and if, and if you don't have a Bible that has cross-references, talk to me, and I'll, I'll give you one today. Read the cross-references in it that point you back to the Old Testament, that promised and described and expand on the events that happen in Jesus' incarnation, in his, in his birth. If you don't know what any of that means, talk, talk to me or Pastor Mark or Mike or John or Mark or Matt. Talk to one of us and we'll help you understand what we mean. But you would do well to read the Christmas story and the cross-references that go with it. They provide and they, they predict Jesus' coming and give depth of meaning to it. As you do with the Spirit's help, I think you'll find encouragement and great joy. So the first way that we saw, we already saw this back in chapter 11, Lazarus foreshadowed Jesus was in his resurrection. Lazarus was sick. If you were here, you heard this already. If you read John, you've read this already. Lazarus was sick. His sisters loved him. They believed in Jesus and that Jesus had the power to do something about it. And so they called out to Jesus. They sent for him that he might come and heal their brother before it was too late. Remember, we were all surprised by this in love. In order to demonstrate the power of God over death, Jesus didn't come immediately. What we expected to happen didn't happen. Jesus, you have the power to save him before he dies. Come quickly. The Bible tells us that Jesus purposefully waited two days instead of coming quickly. Knowingly and intentionally between the time Jesus heard of Lazarus's terminal condition and the time that he eventually arrived in Bethany four days later, Lazarus died. But again, as I'm sure you remember, instead of a tragedy, as God intended, this became a great tidal wave of grace. So consider again the basic events of Lazarus's resurrection from chapter 11. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So he's sick. The Bible tells us that Jesus loved them. I think it meant... He called down some angels and got on their back and took off immediately, right? I don't know if you can do that, but you can picture something like that. That's what love has to mean, you would think, but no. So when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he didn't summon angels to usher him quickly to Lazarus. It says he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Upon arriving, Lazarus was dead. The sisters were distraught. Jesus said to Martha, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? She undoubtedly assumed that meant she would see the glory of God by him prevent, by Jesus preventing her brother from dying in the first place. Jesus had something else in mind. And it says, And he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
the man who died came out. It is obviously a great miracle that Lazarus was raised from the dead. By itself, it's hard to picture a more spectacular display of God's power and glory. And yet, as remarkable as Lazarus' resurrection was, again, Grace, it was merely a foreshadowing of the infinitely greater resurrection that was to come. As you know, Jesus' resurrection is far, far more significant still. Lazarus was raised from the dead only to die again a few years later. We don't know for sure how many, but he died again. In his resurrection, however, Jesus defeated death, definitively definitively proved that all of the promises of God were yes, and rose as the first to be glorified, never to die again. In Lazarus, God demonstrated that he alone has the power over life and death. He did that in part to prepare his people for the greater and greatest display he was about to reveal in Jesus. And so, Grace, get this, the first foreshadowing. Lazarus' resurrection helps us to get ready for Jesus' resurrection. Again, we saw all that in chapter 11, but getting it fresh in our minds puts us in position to best appreciate the second foreshadowing found in our passage. A second way, then, that Lazarus pointed to Jesus was in the response of the Jews to his resurrection, particularly the Jewish leaders. Again, that's what we have in verses 9 through 11. As always, I I hope you're growing to feel this as deeply in your bones, and maybe deeper still than I do. But you can't properly appreciate what we see here if we don't slow down enough to really consider it. Jesus waited until there could be no doubt about the death of Lazarus before raising him from the dead. There was no chance he was just sick or sleeping or faking. He waited until there was no doubt. Lazarus was miraculously, literally, totally, publicly, and undeniably brought back to life by Jesus. We saw a picture in Mary in verse 3, and we'll see a picture in some sense at least from the crowd of Jews in verse 11 of a right response to this, a faithful response to this. But the Jewish leaders do just the opposite in verse 10. It is good to keep 1 through 11 together, John 12, 1 through 11 together, to see this contrast most clearly. See if you can follow along here. Verse 9. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, that is in Bethany with Lazarus, Mary Martha again, they came, probably up from Jerusalem even. They came not only on account of him, that is Jesus, not only because crowds were drawn to Jesus, but also to see Lazarus whom he, Jesus, had raised from the dead. And that makes sense, right? Imagine that you heard that there was a man who raised people from the dead, and he was in East Bethel with one of the guys he raised from the dead. You'd want to go check it out, I think. At least I would. A man who had been raised from the dead was standing in front of them, along with the one responsible for his resurrection. Many gathered around to witness the object and the performer of this miracle. The first thought, what was the first thought of those most responsible to proclaim the glory of God in these events to this people? What was the first thought? Look at it. Look at the text. The first thought of the ones most responsible to point people to the glory of God in this event decided that the best course of action was to try to put them to death again. 
even as they'd already decided to put Jesus to death. Consider how nuts that is. Consider how astoundingly foolish it is to wish death for someone because someone else raised them from the dead. There's no accusation of sin. They didn't accuse Lazarus of having sinned. Lazarus, as far as we're told, didn't even ask to be raised. He just died, you know. People do that. He died. The next thing he knows, he's alive again. And the first thought of the religious leaders is, let's kill him again. Consider how astoundingly foolish it is to plot the death of someone who's already died. It didn't work the first time. What makes you think it'll work this time? Consider how astoundingly foolish it is to not believe in the one who can raise the dead. How could anyone in their right mind do anything other than fall down and worship? Consider how astoundingly foolish it is to want to stop somebody else from believing. Even if you don't believe yourself, consider how foolish it is to want to stop someone else from believing in the one who raises the dead. Again, even if they didn't believe. How crazy is it to try to keep others from believing? And above all, grace, consider how astoundingly foolish it is to wish death for the one who has the power over life and death. Again, what kind of craziness makes someone think it's a good idea to try to kill the one to whom life and death belong? Jesus raises the dead, and Lazarus was among the first to experience that power. What a gift that was to all who witnessed it and heard about it and were able to see Jesus and the raised Lazarus together. Imagine, just imagine, Grace, the power and the glory and the might and the grace and the mercy was a part of this resurrection. Can you imagine a clear example of the true nature of Jesus raising this man from the dead, the Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Godhead? Can you imagine a clearer example of his true nature than this? What help this is for faith and fearlessness. But at the same time, we've got to get this. John has done this before, and he's going to do it again. Can you imagine a clear example of the sinfulness of sin, the power of sin to make you nuts, to make you crazy, to make you astoundingly foolish? I invite you again to slow down and consider what it would take to cause this response from the chief priests and many of the Jews to want to kill the one who'd been raised from the dead and the one who raised him. It is an important theme in John's gospel to help us to see the response as much as, and in some cases more than the action, to help his readers not respond like that, but in faith. And so for the I don't know how many of the time, In his gospel, John recorded this kind of response among those who saw some of the most remarkable things the world has ever seen. He recorded this kind of response in light of this kind of power in order to make clear this kind of sinfulness of sin. Grace, write this down. Write it in your mind. Write it in your heart. Tell it to your neighbors. Sin kills and blinds and corrupts. The killing And blinding and corrupting effect of sin looks different in each of us. But it always kills and blinds and corrupts. In some, sin looks like unbelieving belief. We've seen that a lot in John's Gospel. In some, it looks like bearded lady curiosity. 
In some, it looks like indifference. In some, it looks like soft agnosticism. In some, it looks like angry atheism. And in some, it looks like murderous hatred, like in this passage. The thing that John absolutely wants us to get our heads around is not the manner in which sin manifests in us, but in the fact that it always kills, and the grace of God alone is able to overcome it. Grace Church, learn from this passage. Teenagers, learn from this passage. Guests, strangers, learn from this passage. Learn from this passage. (laughs) Learn from this passage. That those whose sin makes them unbelieving believers, nice church kids who believe in God and intellectually assent to the basic tenets of the gospel, but are entirely more impressed with the things of earth than the one who holds them all together, are in no better place than those who would spew hatred and lies and desire the murder of Jesus. Neither are closer to heaven. Both are equally and fully dead in their trespasses and sins, unwilling And the word of God tells us, unable to truly trust in God apart from the grace of God. Learn from this. We are, in many ways, from birth, like the religious leaders who experienced the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead and thought that the best way to handle that was to put him to death again. That's what sin does. Hear that this Christmas season. (laughs) Joy to the world. In light of this, we do well to consider that it is the same sin that makes us more impressed with things we can order on same-day delivery from Amazon or Hobby Lobby than the birth of our Savior, more impressed with Christmas lights around the neighborhoods than the coming of the light of the world, more impressed with fake physical intimacy on our computers, that's a euphemism, than the bridegroom who died to take away the sins of his bride and make her holy more impressed with some entertainment personality than the one who raises the dead to eternal life. Grace, take some time this week to consider the simple fact that apart from God's grace, we are all like the religious leaders who wanted to kill Jesus and Lazarus again. It is only once we do that we will humble ourselves and trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and resurrection, reconciliation with God and the strength to live as we ought. In the chief priest's desire to kill Lazarus then, we find a clear picture of the power of sin and a foreshadowing of the kind of sinfulness of sin that will soon put the Son of God to death. Again, in each of these foreshadowings, we learn a bit more about the unparalleled glory of Jesus, the power of sin to blind us from it, and the grace of God, which alone is able to overcome it, which came at Christmas. All right, so what difference does all of this make? Hopefully you've already picked up on some of it. Well, what difference does all of this make? As we simultaneously move toward Jesus' birth and Christmas and his death and John's gospel, what does this passage, what do these foreshadowings in it, what does the sinfulness of sin and the resurrection power of Jesus mean for our lives? It means a lot of things, of course, but as I said at the beginning, there's two things in particular I want to close by drawing your attention to. Rightly applied, this passage will firm up our faith and free us from fear. So I got another question for you all. What most causes you to trust in someone or something? I imagine you've experienced broken trust in the past, sometimes maybe 
very painfully so. But what is it that causes you to trust in someone or something? Try to get your head around that. Give it a word. Give it a name. What specifically causes you to trust in someone or something? On what basis are you most likely to believe a plane will safely get you from here to East Lansing, Michigan? Because obviously that's where you'd like to go. I imagine it's an uninterrupted track record, something like an uninterrupted track record of successful flights before you get on one. It'd be really hard, wouldn't it, to trust enough to be the first person to ever get on a plane that would fly across the country. It'd probably be still fairly tough if you were the 50th person to try to fly across the country. But after a few hundred successful flights, coupled with the fact that it saves you at least 10 hours of travel travel time, it'd probably get a little easier, right? In the same way, what would it take for you to trust someone enough to operate on your heart if you needed them to? I'm thinking it's at least two things. A serious enough heart condition that you want somebody drilling around in there, and lots and lots of successful surgeries resulting in the healing of the surgeon's patients. Something like that, right? If you only had a minor heart problem, you know, just whatever. I don't even know what a minor heart problem is. But an unexperienced or unsuccessful surgeon, you'd have no reason to trust them to operate on you. But Grace, really consider this. Whether you're a skeptical unbeliever, if you're in this room right now and you don't believe in Jesus and you know you don't believe in Jesus, If you're a teenager who's often bored or an adult who's often bored at church, someone who, or someone who longs, truly longs to give more of your life to Jesus, the question is, what would it take for you to trust more? What does it take for you to trust more in Jesus? How about an unbroken track record of him telling the truth? His Promises being fulfilled, speaking with unmatched wisdom, performing signs and wonders, and oh, you know, raising other people from the dead before raising himself from the dead or being raised himself from the dead. How about if you couple that by looking at the religious leaders, the chief priests, and grow in your awareness of the sinfulness of sin and unworthiness or undeservedness of God's love. How about when those things come together? As I hope to have helped you to see, we have all of that in the story of Lazarus. The resurrection power of Jesus and the power of sin to blind us even from that. If you and I, if we are to trust or grow, to grow in our trust for Jesus, it will be because we read passages like this and the Holy Spirit is pleased to drive them into us, that we might ask the Holy Spirit to transform us by these things. The Spirit of God, empowering the Word of God through our prayers to God, is the means of God to grow our trust in God. And John explicitly tells us that he wrote his gospel for that reason. Would you pray this prayer today? Would you humbly ask the Spirit to drive this passage and passages like it, where the glory of Jesus is on display and the sinfulness of sin are on display? And if you do, and as you do, he's pleased to grow you in your faith. We, in Berea this morning, learned about sanctification, the means of God's grace. This is one of them. 
Would you pray this for yourself and for me and for your family and for all of Grace Church, that the Spirit would take the word and these stories that John gives us in his gospel, and these parallels and these centuries before promises of this, and fill us with faith. Finally then, I'd love, I'd love for you, I would love to know what it was like for Lazarus to be raised from the dead. You ever think about that? What did he experience exactly? What was it like? Was he asleep and then woke up again? Was it that simple? What did he experience? Did he, did he see a bright light? Was that real? Did that happen? Did he get a taste of his glorification? The Bible doesn't tell us any of those things, but it, it would be interesting to know, wouldn't it? But here's something else I'd like to know. What was it like for him, having been raised from the dead, standing there with Jesus, the one who raised him from the dead, and because of that, and apparently nothing more, be on the chief priest's most wanted list because of it? What was that like for him? And what I mean in particular is it would seem to me that if anything could drive out fear of death, it would be having died and risen from death, wouldn't it? Wouldn't you think that? Like, hey, they, they tried it, didn't work, I'm here. And so to get put on their list, you would think if anything could drive out fear, it has to be your own resurrection, I, I would think. Doesn't seem to have been all that bad. He didn't come out. John doesn't tell us he came out like screaming and hollering or anything like that. Just got up and walked out and doesn't seem to have been all that bad. And so why would he ever worry about dying again? Do you think that's what it would be for you? If you died and rose from the dead, do you think you'd come out unafraid of anyone and anything but God himself? I don't know if he was afraid or not. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I do know that you and I are promised an even greater resurrection, and we're afraid of all kinds of things at all kinds of times. So how then can we be freed from our fear? How can we overcome our worry about money, sickness, or relational challenges, or loneliness, or a kid's future, or political unrest, or these geopolitical conflicts that are in the news every day, or religious leaders who want to kill us because we've been raised from the dead? How do you stop being afraid of those things? How do we come to live lives of inner peace beyond anything we could ask for or imagine that the Bible talks about and even promises? The answer, again, is the same as the last. True courage and peace. Remember this, Grace, because we're all chasing these things so much. True courage and peace don't come from more successfully walling ourselves off from the outside or for getting, for getting a good enough job that provides enough money that we can fill our banks and our savings account with it, or by having the best doctors, or by our kids being obedient enough, or living in a country with the strongest military. Fearlessness doesn't come from any of those things, or at least informed fearlessness doesn't. A veneer of it, an imposter fearlessness might, but the real thing doesn't. It comes from and only from faith that is graciously given by and firmly resting in the one who raises and was raised from the dead. That's it. Freedom from fear comes from faith in the work and promises of the one who raised Lazarus from the dead and will raise you from the dead if your hope is in him. He stood firm through the murderous threats of the powers of earth, even unto death, and then defeated death by rising himself. 
he will rise, raise you from the dead as well. Freedom from fear comes from faith, firmed faith in him. Again, then, Grace Church, go to God in humble prayer this week. As you consider Jesus' birth and life and death and resurrection, foreshadowed by Lazarus and demonstrated over and over again in the power of God, go to God in humble prayer and ask him to help you believe what is true so that you will live in faith and without fear of anything or anyone that can kill only the body. In John 11, we're given a a foreshadowing of Jesus' resurrection when he raised Lazarus from the dead. In 12, 1 through 8, we're given examples of a right response to this, to Jesus, in light of that. And then in 12, 9 through 11, we see another foreshadowing in the murderous threats of the religious leaders against Lazarus that would soon be unleashed on Jesus. As I mentioned in the beginning, these two foreshadowings and the responses of others to them help us to see more of who Jesus is and what is at stake and how we respond to it or why we respond to it in the way that we do. Two more senses, three more senses. May we turn to God to firm up our faith and grant us freedom from fear. That is why we have Christmas. That's why Christmas exists. And it is why it is worth celebrating in the highest. That is also why we have Easter and why it's so good to have both together, one in uh, our own week and one in John's gospel, both together this week. Glory to God in the highest.